mic because I'm a creature of habit and this is driving me crazy. If you've watched any amount of television, you know that there are sometimes episodes that are paired together with a to-be-continue, and it usually involves a cliffhanger. Um, we didn't have a cliffhanger that we hit on Sunday, but what we talked about last week and what we talk about this morning are inherently joined together, and, and to look at them separately would, would be a terrible mistake. And so we have to do something like they do on television and do a previously on, right? previously on last Sunday. Uh, And so with that in mind, I want you to just open up, as I mentioned, to Ephesians chapter 4. And before we read our passage for this morning, I want to just reach back a few verses, um, verse uh, 20, and, and read through and just summarize what we learned last week. So Paul here, writing to the Ephesians church and and telling them that they're no longer to walk as the Gentiles, says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So to summarize from last week, two very simple things. The New Testament and Paul here declares that something so significant happened in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it is life-changing for you right now. Not just when you die, not just can you be forgiven and therefore eternally enjoy a relationship with God, but you can also have new life right now. Okay? Because Jesus didn't just die in your place, But again, to use the language of Paul, you died with Christ. And so the old man has died, and Jesus has risen from the dead, and that means that there's a new life available for you. And so we emphasized last week that because of what Jesus has done, change is possible. Change, leaving behind who you were and becoming who you are in Christ, is not just possible, but as Paul lays out here, it's commanded. This is your daily work as Christians, to grow more like Christ, not in your own strength and not with your own strategy, but using the plan that Paul's laid out here, which, as we saw last week, has three steps. To put off and to put on, and in between those two, the, the, um, the filling of our Oreo is to be renewed in your mind. And so last week, we kind of laid out the big picture of this to turn away from, to identify, that's no longer me, that's no longer who I am, that isn't godly, that doesn't honor God, to own it and to put it off, and then to be renewed in your mind means to encounter the truth, the reality of what happened in Jesus Christ that makes not just that life inappropriate, but draws us to a new life, and then to put on that new life. The reason why I'm hammering this this morning is because the rest of chapter 4, Paul is just illustrating that principle. And we're going to see that this morning. In each case, he's going to call us to put off something in particular. 
He's going to call us to put on something instead, and he's going to give us a truth, a reality, something that is true in Christ that can renew our mind and move us to that place, okay? And so, last week we looked at the new self in Christ, this possibility that's available, but this week we're going to look at the new self in life. What does this actually mean for us? How does it work? And through that, we'll look at some concrete illustrations. So let's read verses 25 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and take a closer look. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the old man and the new man, as we look at the things that we're called to put off and the things that we're called to put on, I pray, Lord, for, for honest and true conviction that we would be able to recognize the parts of our life that are too similar to what you saved us from, that we would recognize the things that are no longer who we are in Christ, and that we would feel the call and the empowerment today to put those off and to put on uh, the, the behavior and the habits and the heart of Jesus himself as we seek to live for you and as we seek to love one another. And we ask that your spirit would help us with all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The material that's given to us here this morning is clearly commandments. This is stuff for us to do. Okay? These are exhortations. This is uh, you know, a to-do list of righteousness. There's really no getting away from that. But it's important to recognize how unique, again, this passage is from just a list of things to do. And it's unique for two reasons. One is because of that therefore in verse 25. Because we have not so learned Christ, therefore. Because Christ died and you died with Christ, therefore. Because now there's newness of life available for you in Christ, therefore. If you forget the stuff that falls before this, you'll just try to earn your way into God's favor, which doesn't work. And you'll just try to do what you cannot do in your own strength because you are a sinner. And that is built into the premise of what God has made available in Jesus Christ. You needed a savior. And not just for yesterday, but for today and for tomorrow. Okay? And so we have to maintain that there is a horse before this cart. That Christ has saved us, therefore, okay, because God works in us, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But you remove that first part, impossible, the second part becomes, okay? 
But the second thing we need to do is what I mentioned in the introduction. We need to recognize that here he presents illustrations, example, concrete uh, pictures of put off, put on, and be renewed in your mind. And he does it pretty comprehensively. One of the things that's really interesting about this passage is how often he uses body language. He talks about our mouths and our hands and our hearts. Okay? And so the idea here is there is the old mouth and the new mouth. There is how you used to put your hands to work and how you do now. Okay? And there is the old heart and the new heart. That flows just consistently through this passage. And so what we're talking about, again, is walking out a new way of being, a new way to be human, a new way of life that stems from Jesus, not just in example, but in empowerment. Okay? And so the second thing that's really interesting about this is that, uh, that Paul doesn't just say, do these things because they're right. Don't do these things because they're wrong. Instead, he says, don't do these things and do these things instead because of this. And then he extrapolates, he presents something that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ that changes the way we think. In other words, he doesn't say, don't do this because this is bad. He says, don't do this because this is dumb. Okay? He says it doesn't make sense anymore. For you to live like this is to forget what is so significantly true in Christ. So let's look at the first example here in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood. You hear the language? Put off falsehood. Put off lying. Put off deceit. Put off hiding behind, right? And instead, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's the put on. We as Christians should be a people of integrity. A people of honesty. And again, That extends to all your relationships, but Paul's primary concern is how we talk to one another, how we speak to the people in this room this morning and the other ones who call this church their home, okay? We are to put off falsehood and instead to speak the truth, but notice the reason he gives here. He says, because, end of verse 25, for we are members of one another. Don't miss that. That's not an aside. That is a central point. He's saying falsehood no longer makes sense any more than it would make sense for your finger to lie to your face. You're part of the same body. Okay? What he's recognizing here is we're all in this together. And we all got here in the same way. Jonathan Edwards suggests there's really only two reasons we lie. We either lie to hide who we really are, or we lie to present ourselves as more than we are. And so sometimes we lie out of fear, and the fear says, if they knew the truth, they would reject me. If they knew the truth, they would put me out. If they knew the truth, they would think less of me, okay? Or we think, I'm going to say it slightly different because I'd like them to think better of me than I am, okay? So pride and fear, those are the primary motivations in lying. And if you reflect for yourself, it's hard to come up with another good reason to lie, except I want to be thought better of than I really am, or I don't want people to know who I really am. Okay. But what he says here is we are members of one another. We're part of the same body. And so first, remember this morning how that came to be. 
what is it Paul says has made us a family? Is, that we looked, is it that we looked around and said, those people look really cool, I'd like to be part of them? No. Is it that we all have the same race or the same language or the same culture or the same sports team? No. It's that we all share the same Savior. And so it's significant to recognize the power of the cross in terms of making us honest. Because here's what happened in the cross. Looking at Jesus dying for your place sends two very significant messages about your identity. The first is you need a savior. Jesus hangs on that cross not because of his sins, but because of ours. And you cannot become a Christian without recognizing your need for a savior. You cannot become a Christian without recognizing I am a sinner who needs help. Okay? But notice what that does to your pride. You cannot rightly embrace the cross of Christ apart from the humility that says, I need it. You can't come and say, I am great and righteous and perfect and good enough for a relationship with God. You have to say, I'm not. Okay. But it also deals with our fear because not only did Christ have to die for you, he was willing to die for you. The cross of Christ is not a compromise or a plan that human beings made and went to God and went, hey, we know we've messed things up. We've got a way to fix it. It's God himself taking on flesh and saying, out of love and with my initiation, I desire to set things right and I'll do it at the cost of my own payment. And so not only do you have something that deals with your pride and humbles you, you have something that deals with your fear. Guess what? God knows exactly who you really are. Anything you could present and fool us with, you cannot fool God. That's why Matthew Henry said, hypocrisy is not just a great sin, it's a great foolishness. Because the only person who gets a vote is not caught off guard. He knows who you really are. But also, Paul says, we're members of one another. Remember, we share that story in common. Every one of us is here, not because we've earned it, or deserved it, nor are we here as long as we can sustain it and prove it, but because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. And so there is a great ground here for being a community of honesty that has nothing to hide, because we don't deserve to be here, because Jesus has invited each one of us personally and paid our way. So we have that origin story, but also we're members of one another. Not only have we each become a part of Christ, but we've become a part of one another, which is why I said earlier, it's like a finger lying to your face. What advantage does a finger gain in pretending to be something else? Okay, What we do together, we do as a body. And so when we need help, we don't come in hiding and say, I don't need any help. We ask for help. And when we need comfort, we find it here. And when we need forgiveness, we can bring that forgiveness into one another's lives. Okay, and so he says here, it doesn't make any sense anymore to be a people of deceit, to hide who you really are, to express dishonesty. Now, you may agree with that this morning, but you still have a habit of dishonesty. I don't know if you're this way, but I noticed it this week. Sometimes I lie without even thinking about it. And it's not till later I go, why did I do that? 
I did that because I forgot. I did that because I am not reckoning, reckoning the old man is dead in Christ and the new life that is available. Okay? And so I need all the time to renew my mind and go, that's not who I am anymore. Instead, I can walk in honesty and integrity. Okay? And so this is how this works. But again, notice this. The old person, the old man, the pre-Christian is marked here by lying and deceit. But also notice, Paul doesn't just put it in the negative. He doesn't say, stop lying, period. And this is a problem with a lot of our views of what's right and wrong. Most of us have merely a one-sided view of right and wrong. And so we think, I'm a good person if I don't, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. And in every place, Paul this, is going, this morning is going to say it's not enough to just put off. You could remove your tongue and say, I never told a lie because I couldn't speak. But you would not be a righteous person. Okay? And not only would you have the heart to deal with, and that's what the New Testament says, we need a heart t- transplant. We've got to get to the core of our being. But also, righteousness has a positive side, not just a negative side. And so we are to be a people of integrity, a people of honesty. But let me just hit it one last time that this is a regular and daily confrontational renew your mind practice. This isn't something you do once. I did not just cure you all of dishonesty this morning by telling you you're members of one another. This has to be repeated and replied and restored. A friend of mine was a wild liar. And for many years, none of us knew. And he had built this entire perception of him that involved jobs he wasn't employed at and relationships he didn't have and all of these things. And then one day he was caught in all of it. And it was actually a great relief to him because as good of a juggler as you are, you can't just keep adding balls and juggling more and more. And he was spending so much time sustaining this false persona. He was relieved when he was caught. But he was still a liar by habit. It was his tendency just to make stuff up. It was his tendency to defensively come up with a... And I asked him, I said, how in the world are you overcoming that? He said, I blurt out the truth. I said, what do you mean? He's like, anytime I feel myself prone to deception, I just blurt out the honest truth as quick as I can so it's on the table and I can't deny it. Okay, that's a good illustration of put off, put on. It's actively recognizing I'm going the wrong way and setting it right, right in the moment, nipping it in the bud, being drastic and, uh, and, and you know, um, dramatic about dealing with this. And isn't that how Jesus tells us to deal with our sin? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, he's not talking about maiming there. He's being hyperbolic, but he clearly means take sin seriously. Blurt out the truth is a way to take sin seriously. But as you do so, do it bathed in the truth of what's true about you in Jesus Christ. If not, all you'll get is habit modification and your heart will remain untouched. And we all know that you can be a liar at heart and too afraid to lie in public. Okay. Let's look at the next one. He continues and he says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The second thing he mentions here is anger. 
And I'm, I'm only going to say this once, it's something for your own reflection, but if you look at this list tomorrow or the day after, or you return to it later, pay attention to how closely this parallels the Ten Commandments. Okay? So, do not bear false witness is the one we just heard hit. And here we get anger, and you go, well, Ten Commandments don't say don't be angry. Jesus says they do. Jesus says that when we are called not to murder... But when we bear anger in our heart and we wish someone were dead, we might as well have murdered them. At the heart level, it stems from the same place and it's the same issue. So it's not surprising here that Paul turns to anger. But also notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. Do you see that? He says, put away falsehood. He doesn't say put away anger. Now to be fair, when we get to... um, Verse 31, he will say to put away wrath and anger and clamor, okay? And so there is an anger that we should fully put away, but not all anger is that type of anger. How do I know that? Because earlier it said that this new man we're to walk in is in the image of its creator. In other words, righteousness looks like God himself. Does God get angry? Yes, he does. God's anger is part of his righteousness, And if we understand the significant impact that our sin has on other people or other people's sin has on other people, we should rightly be angered. Okay. But, but there is something about the holy heart of God that handles anger in a holy way in which we do not often follow. Okay, this is why... Uh, Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And oh my gosh, if there was a message for our day and age, it's that one. We have believed that anger is the greatest tool of transformation and justice there is, and we employ it with a vengeance. But when we do so, there is always collateral damage. Because we are not the judge of the universe. And we are not perfect in our perception. And so here he says, be angry, but don't be angry in sin. And that's the second thing we should notice this morning. He makes a relationship there. Can you be sad in sin? Sure. Can you be happy in sin? Yeah. But there is a closer relationship between anger and the, the danger of sin. What is it? It's energy passion okay think of the language we use for anger we're consumed with anger we blew our top i'm out of control we're the incredible hulk right there's this recognition that we have that when anger gets to a certain level we are no no longer consciously in our control but anger is in the driving seat right you've seen inside out you know how this works okay (laughs) There is a recognition here that anger is something that is, one, an emotion. Denying your emotions doesn't work. Repressing them and pushing them down not only doesn't get rid of them, but sometimes it gives them power because then they operate in the shadows. Okay? So this is not saying, I'm not angry. You probably need to learn to own your anger. Okay? But you also need to handle your anger productively. Okay, so he says, angry, and do not sin. And then he says, don't let your sun go down on your anger. Here's the second thing about anger. 
the longer you cultivate it, the more dangerous it gets. The more you stoke that fire, the hotter it gets. The more steam there is, the more energy, the more dangerous it is. Okay? And so he says, don't let your sun go down on your anger. That means anger is going to happen. You could put it on a t-shirt. Anger happens. Okay? But if you don't handle it rightly, and if instead you nourish it, and you feed it, and you meditate on it, and you revisit it the next morning, and the next morning, the more that is, the more dangerous it gets. And so what he says is very simple. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do something with it. And there are some of us who feel like that gives us justification to vent it, which is a modern idea. Again, anger definitely has this energy idea, but how do you deal with energy? You release it. What Paul is saying here is clearly not, when you're mad, just get it out of your system. He's not saying here to, you know, do some sort of primal rage therapy, nor is he saying, hey, you told me to be honest, and honesty is going to stem from a place of angry, and then you just consume somebody with the fire of your anger. All of that falls into the do not sin category. Okay. So what do we do with our anger? First, learn from God with Jonah. Is Jonah angry? Yes. Is his anger just? No. And so God interrogates his anger. He says, is it right for you to be angry? You should get in the habit of asking yourself that same question. The first way to address your anger is to interrogate it. Okay. Is it right for me to be angry? But notice what he says here. He says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Remember I mentioned collateral damage? What he recognizes here is that when we don't deal rightly with our anger, when we don't bring it into the presence of God and interrogate it, when we don't assess it and address it, and we'll deal with a little bit of this more later, when we leave it and we cultivate it, we give, he says, opportunity to the devil. Okay. What he's suggesting here is in Christ, you have learned that there's a real spiritual enemy who is active in this world from the shadows. And he is very competent at using your anger destructively. He is very competent at recognizing when two people are mad and they turn away from each other, that he can just pound a wedge right between them and sever the relationship forever. He is very capable of taking your anger when it's unaddressed and tipping you over the tipping point so that you redirect it at the wrong person and now you've just destroyed someone else in a way that you regret even though you weren't angry at them at all. It recognizes here that the, the devil is very interested in tearing apart the community that you call family. Okay? Because when he does so, we all suffer. Because when, we, when he does so, our body is weakened. Our witness to the world is weakened. And if you just have been a part of churches for any length of time, you've seen this in practice. Where you're walking through the wasteland, you know, the, the, the destructive field, you know, of what happened. And you're like, how did we get here? How in the world did this little issue in this little corner of the church devastate the entire church? This is how. Because extended anger gave opportunity to the devil. 
Now, the truth is, Paul illustrates that from here, but he could have done it for any of them. Any sin you quietly and comfortably nurture and maintain provides an opportunity for the devil to work in your life. Okay? But it's especially true and visible here with anger. Okay? And so what Paul is saying is put off this anger that leads to sin. Put it off and put on instead a swiftness to resolve. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Put on uh, dealing with your anger before the sun goes down, remembering that there's more at stake and that there's more involved that you can see. Okay. One last illustration before we move on. Have you ever met someone who was so filled with righteous indignation they were convinced that every decision and every word that came out of their mouth in that situation was right? And yet you're standing on the outside going, are you kidding me? That's the devil. That's the power of anger. It's blinding rage, right? And so we need one another, and we need to deal with these things, and we need to watch out for it. And we've only covered two this morning, and I know you're seeing yourselves this morning. Because we're all sinners, but some of us have unique predispositions to particular corners. And so somewhere this morning you're going to be like, yeah, that's the old me. Did you hear the language I use? That's important. Not, yeah, that's me. That's the old me. But we need to recognize that some of this stuff is so ingrained in our family histories. Some of this stuff is so developed in our self-preservation. Some of this, we've just gone through the motions so many times that it's just our natural go-to. But you did not so learn Christ. Let's look at the third one here. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay? He says, don't steal. This is, this is I think, the most accessible of the list. It, again, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. Okay? But again, it's a good illustration here that being a person who doesn't shoplift doesn't make you righteous. And notice also that when he goes on, he says, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. If we stop there, we find an American ethic, right? An ethic of hard work and self-sufficiency, and that doesn't get to the but rather. That doesn't get to righteousness. He doesn't say, don't steal, but work for yourself. He says, don't steal, but work so much that you have something to give to those who are in need. And the danger with the American self-sufficiency model is it says need is evidence of sin. If you're in a place where you have need, you've clearly been undiligent in your life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. A righteous community has real causes of need, and righteousness in that community means working so hard that you can help meet those needs. Okay. I want you to notice another thing here. He says, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. The word there for labor... We can sometimes miss this, but it means to toil. It means to work up a sweat. It means to work really hard. Okay. Paul recognizes here that work is hard, but he also recognizes that it's good. Okay. And this is another thing I think we need to course correct, because sometimes we have this idea that work is a consequence of the curse. Toil 
is a consequence of the curse. Work is a consequence of God's good design. You need work because you need purpose. And when we're called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it, that's a call for all human beings to get their hands dirty. And it doesn't mean you have to plant a tree or grow a garden. That's only an expression of God's call. When we, uh, you know, when we master maths and sciences and use it to perpetuate the flourishing of community, we do that work. When we raise children from babies to fully functioning adults, we do that work. Okay? When we take on a job to pick up the trash of a community so that we don't just bury ourselves in disease and disgust, we do that work. And that work is good and God-given and to be embraced and to throw your whole life into it. But again, it's not about self-sufficiency because righteousness biblically is about a community. It's about a way a people live together and not some dude out in the wilderness all on his own who's got it all right. And so here, you put off theft. You don't steal. And, and we should read this broadly. It doesn't just mean shoplifting. It means stealing from your time at work. It means uh, you know, grazing off the top of your employees. It means embezzling from your company. It means not paying your taxes. We could go on and on and on about what theft is here. But what I want you to notice here is there's a change in heart that doesn't say, I'm going to provide for myself at any cost. I'm going to beat this dog-eat-dog, rat-race world by doing whatever I can get away with to a heart that says, I'm going to work hard so that the whole community flourishes. Now, why would that be the case? Where does this change of heart come from? I think if we had to summarize what he says we're to do instead, we could do it just with the language of generosity. And here's what Paul says about what Jesus did for you in 1 Corinthians. It's, he says this. He says, he who was rich, that's Jesus, owns all things. The cattle on a thousand hills, as it says in the Old Testament, who has all the wealth and righteousness of glory in God. He who was rich became poor. He entered into humanity, into a poor family, living in a backwoods neighborhood, living, as he said, without a house. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Impoverishing himself until he found himself naked and exposed upon a cross. He who be was rich became poor so that you being poor might become rich. Okay. We are generous as Christians because we have experienced the ultimate generosity. Because God has given us no less than everything freely and abundantly in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so that frees us up to join God in that mission, mission to be a blessing. And if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll see that's exactly where Paul goes. He says, and God will supply all your needs abundantly. But he says that in the context of speaking to needs meters. Those who are participating in that generosity. Okay? Put off, put on, be renewed in your mind. Okay, so that's what we do with our hands. What about our mouths? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Okay, let's start with this idea of corrupting talk. Is Paul talking about swearing? I think he probably is, but is he only talking about swearing? No. This is not about curse words, okay? The language he uses is corrupting. 
So here's how I want you to assess your speech. Does it burn away? Does it tear down? Does it destroy? Does it decay? Okay. That's what he's talking about. What he's suggesting here is words have power, both to tear down and to build up. And we all know it's true because you have those phrases said by people who were significant to you who ch that still chase you to this day, that replay regularly like a tape recorder, that you have to push against with your whole life. Words tear down and words build up. And you can probably remember build-up words too. Those times where somebody said something that has become, it's, it's something you carry with you now. It's a blessing, okay? What he's suggesting here is every time we open our mouths, we engage in destruction or construction. Okay. And this is, this is why bad language fits this category. Because it doesn't make better people. It doesn't improve or encourage or strengthen people. Now, I'm a grammar guy, and one of the things I hate about bad language is because it becomes so easy that we lose the ability to talk. When you have those friends who use the F word, not with any meaning, but just as a comma in their sentences, right? It's a hindrance to communication. But more significantly than that, it is corrupting. It's contagious. And it doesn't make fully functioning, healthy, mature, society-blessing people. It spreads corruption. But so does biting remarks. And so does, you know, a jocular, joking thing at other people's expense. And so does not guarding your tongue so that you blurt out and share other people's secrets. Okay? When he says no corrupting talk, he's talking about gossip. Because gossip tears down and destroys reputations. Okay? And so what you do with your mouth matters. And if I can just hammer it one last time, Jesus says we will be judged for every idle word. Do you know what an idle word is? It's a word that's thoughtless. It's a word that just rolls off the tongue. And one of the reasons I'm hitting this so strong this morning is because this is a major part of my old man. As you can probably guess, communication is something that comes really naturally to me, but you want to know how I used it before I was a Christian? To keep people at a distance and to put them in their place. And I hid it behind a strong sense of humor. And so as long as I got a laugh from the room, I didn't really worry about the one we were laughing at. And to be honest, when I'm tired, even after 20 years, if I'm not in a right place, my tongue will just go off with itself and I'll hurt the people around me. The only difference is now these people are my family and my responsibility. And so we're to put off corrupting speech and then notice again, Biting your tongue and saying nothing isn't righteousness. You have a role to play in encouraging, exhorting, admonishing, building up the people, again, in this room and the ones who call their church home. And notice what he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but rather only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion and may give grace to those who hear. There is enough dimensions there, those three dimensions, for you to assess the way you talk to people. First off, does it fit the occasion? Is this the right time to say this? Or am I just butting into the conversation with something with my own agenda? Okay. Is it the right time to say it? And it's amazing to me that Paul puts that on the list first. 
Whereas we might do that maybe the last thing, go, okay, this is what I'm going to say, this is how I'm going to say it. Should I say it right now? Paul says first, should you even crank your mouth open right now or should you keep it shut? Okay. But the second thing he says is that it would uh, give gr- uh, grace to those who hear. Okay. That, they, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is it going to be empowering? And, and notice he doesn't say here that it's a kind word. When he says grace, what's he connecting it with? He's connecting it with God. This is, this is not your words. This is not your wisdom that you're imparting to this person. This is not your buttering them up. This is not your compliment. It's something that gives grace. This is the difference between buttering someone up and encouragement. One somehow directly connects to the goodness of God and what's available in Jesus Christ. And so will this empower them to follow Jesus? Will this empower them to be who they are? And then he sums it up with the picture of building in the, in the opening there. He says, only such as is good for building up. Intend in your conversations, both the simple ones that you have when you're checking in with people and the big ones, to be a builder to leave people better than you found them. And let's be frank here. Sometimes the Bible calls us to tear down before we can build. Sometimes we have to say hard words, which Proverbs says are like the kissing of a friend or are better than the kisses of an enemy, okay? And if we're building a house and we go in and somebody hires us to build a new room and then we look at the foundation and it's crumbling, we go first before before construction comes demolition. But what's the goal? Is the goal to just crush and walk away, leaving a hole in the ground? No, it's to tear down to build up. It's to remove the cancer and to restore the body. Okay. And so here we should be thoughtful about building one another up. But why? Notice what he says. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He ties your mouth the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's agenda, the Spirit's job, the Spirit's purpose is to build the church. We've seen that. That's why he's given us gifts so that we can build up the body. Those are the gifts of the Spirit, right? That's why his goal is, uh, you know, is creative. He's working to make us more like Christ. God's desire through the Spirit for you is to make you a builder. And he says, by whom you were sealed for redemption. The idea of seal here is ownership. The recognition is because you've received the Spirit, it's as if there is one of those wax seals on a crate on a boat that says, this one belongs to God. When it gets where it's going, it's his. And when we use our words destructively and corruptingly against other people, we push against the ceiling of God's redemption. We push against the purposes of God in other people's lives. We go against the grain of the Holy Spirit. And it says here that it grieves him. The Spirit is grieved when we make cutting remarks. The Spirit is grieved when we gossip about one another. The Spirit is grieved when we're careless in our language. Because he is trying to do something, to make us a temple, one stone at a time, to build us up so that we grow into the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
And you've joined that mission, not just as a recipient of that work, but a participant in it by that same Holy Spirit. Okay. Let's look at the last one here. The last one is a list, a long list. And it may be that Paul's just pulling a junk drawer here. In other words, there's so many places he could illustrate this. And so he, he takes his time and hits a couple of big ones. And then he goes, and all the rest count too. And so he just rattles off a few more. But I would suggest they do have something in common. Let's read them together and I'll show you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. What do they th these things have in common? Okay, First, basic. Most lowest level, what do they have in common? They're all socially destructive. They're about fighting. They're about banging against one another. They're about tearing apart instead of coming together. Okay, But second, almost all of these have to do with how we handle other people's bad behavior. These are not initial sins, they're reactionary sins. Okay. And so listen to them again. Bitterness. Bitterness is when somebody has hurt you or you perceive that you've, they've hurt you and you internalize that and you make it a defining part of your identity and it shapes your relationship with them. Right? It, it's about taking something that was done to you and making it your own. It's now a part of you. Okay. Wrath. That's reacting to other people's sin, right? With that huge, explosive, you won't do this to me again because I'll make sure you know the cost of it thing, right? Uh, it continues here and it says, anger and clamor and slander. Anger and clamor when they're put together is fighting, okay? And not just fisticuffs, not just physical fighting, but arguing and debating and going the rounds over and over again. Slander. Slander is when we make ac accusations against people's character, especially to other people, right? And then it says it should be put away, and then it adds all malice. Malice is a motive. Malice has to do with how you view other people and the intentions in their life. Malice says, I'm going to make you pay. Malice says, I'm going to make sure everybody knows the type of person you are. Malice says, I have a mission to get you back. And he says, all of that stuff is old man. All of that stuff needs to be put away. Okay. But rather, he says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ gave you. So in contrast to this whole list of behaviors, he just says we're to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. You see how that also has to do with what we do with other people's sins? The word there for kindness is sometimes translated as compassionate or even gracious. The idea is we do not react to people's sin with what they deserve, but we come at them with mercy. We come at them with compassion, knowing that just like them, we are also sinners. Knowing that just like them, we have an old man that we're trying to put off. Knowing that just like them, we needed Christ to die on the cross to set us right and that we are still a work in progress. Imagine before we had ways to anesthetize people for surgery, right, to numb them. Imagine what it'd be like to have gone through as a surgeon the removal of a body part and then be performing the surgery. Do you think you'd be any different there? Do you think you'd be more tender if you had been through the losing of a leg? I mean, you've experienced this, right? Who were the people who were the most helpful to you in your grief? Those ones who have tasted it firsthand the ones who understand and have experienced it. 
Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But mercy and vengeance is one of those places that we're very reluctant to follow Jesus' advice. We want the world to show us mercy, and we want to preserve the right to respond in justice, in kind. But if you, again, understand what Jesus has done for you, then compassion is the natural result. You can't do this on your own. You can't drum up compassion. At the best, you'll get an ulcer, okay? But you can experience the compassion of Christ. Jesus was meeting with a Pharisee who had him over for dinner, and he was basically just vetting Jesus. He didn't really believe in him. He wasn't really interested in him, but he wanted to see if he could finger what was wrong with him. And so they're eating at dinner, and a woman comes in. And the, the Gospel of Luke just tells us she was a known sinner. Everybody in town knew the type of woman this was. We're not told anymore. And this Pharisee, Simon, thinks to himself, as this woman comes in and is weeping at Jesus' feet and washing his feet with his tears, he thinks, man, if this man was really a prophet, he'd know what type of woman that was, and he'd keep his distance. And Jesus speaks up and he says, Simon, I've got, I've got something to say to you. And he asks him this question. He says, who loves more, the one who's forgiven little or the one who's forgiven much? And Simon goes, well, I guess the one who's forgiven much. And he says, you see this woman? You didn't even anoint my feet. Just normal eat Middle Eastern hospitality. You didn't anoint my feet, but she anointed it. You didn't kiss me as I came into your house, but she has not ceased kissing my feet. I tell you the truth that those who are forgiven much love much. Okay. The recognition that Jesus makes is there's a direct correlation from your sense of what God has done in your life and the way you view other people. And so why did Simon not have compassion on this woman? Because he didn't need compassion himself. But he was wrong. The outside of the cup was clean, Jesus would say, but the inside was disgusting. He was like a whitewashed tomb full of rotting bodies but Simon couldn't see that and so he had no compassion so we should be kind tender-hearted and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you listen Jesus says very strong things about unforgiveness right he, he says after explaining the Lord's prayer forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us and then he says because if you do not forgive you will not be forgiven and we go, whoa. But what he's recognizing is that you cannot receive the forgiveness of God without it changing your life. And so if it doesn't make you a forgiving person, something's wrong. Something's disconnected. And it's worth pointing out here that on this list of put off, you need to put off unforgiveness. I don't think unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. I think that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to say. But it is a sin that needs to be forgiven and repented of. You are not God. You are not judge. And Christ freely forgave you. Like the story he tells about the servant who owed millions to his masters and he said, it's all gone. And then throttled another servant for, or, you know, for owing him 1095. The, the point is, you've forgiven, been forgiven so much because you needed to be forgiven so much. So why wouldn't you extend that to those around you? Okay. But again, the way you do that is not brute force and willpower. You need your mind to be renewed. 
You need to reflect on the grace that you've received and the goodness of Jesus Christ. You need to recognize that even if they're not a Christian, that Jesus is standing by ready and willing and desiring to forgive them of all of it. That's his heart. And it's the heart he has for you. Okay. So do you see here that a life of following Christ is a new life? It's new in that it looks completely different. It's counterintuitive. It moves against the grain of the world around us, the way we are treated and the way we treat others. And do you see that it's also an incredibly good life? Do you not want to be a part of a community like this? Would you be amazed if a community like this would even accept you as one of their members? I would. What it's offering to you here in the one another's is a beautiful and flourishing community that is life-giving and loving and growing. But it's also impossible if we don't take time to revisit, to reflect on, to meditate on, to remember, to remind one another, to review the truths of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And so again, like I said last week, the habit that I'm encouraging you to make daily is to be able to identify, to pull the alarm on the old man when he shows up in your life and go, that's it. That is the old man and to consciously and decisively put it off. To remind yourself of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and then to actively pursue the positive version of it. Not just to stop there and go, all right, I I sinned, God, please forgive me, but to repent, which means to turn another way and do something different, okay? To go back to the person and speak honestly where you once deceived. To... Go back to the place that you stole from and seek to work hard to not just pay it back but to have something to share with those in need. To go back to those who you have torn down with your words and seek instead not just to own that and to ask for forgiveness of it but to invest in their life and use your words for good instead of evil. On each and every one of these, God is not just calling us to a new way of living, he has given us new life and is calling us to work it out into our daily experience. And here is the best part. When you intentionally pursue habits, it changes your character. That's the promise of this passage. The promise is that as you put on the new man, you will become the new man. You will become a new woman in Christ. You will become honest and an exhorter and an encourager instead of a cynic and a backbiter. And you will become forgiving and kind-hearted and tender instead of judgmental and self-righteous. Those changes are available to you because God actually did something in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He put the old man to death And he gave you the newness of life that you may walk in it. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure I don't speak for everyone this morning, but but for me, this is overwhelming because I know the old man really well. I know as every trait and characteristic I live and breathe and converse with and can trace all of the bad harvest of years and years of the person I was before Christ. And I also know how stubborn the old man is and how often I find him buried beneath my own self-righteousness and still present. 
But we also know that this is why you came and that you know all things. You know where we are, you know where we've been, and you've taken care of all of it already in the cross. That you've already paid for all of it. That you didn't just purchase part of our life and leave the rest fallow, but that you desire to bring a full harvest of righteousness. And that that's not something you just have put on our shoulders and called us to figure out and to work out on our own, but instead you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it, need, it, it requires that our minds are renewed. It requires that we move away from the old thoughts that drive us to new thoughts that will also drive us. It requires that we work as a community to cultivate and encourage and to exhort one another in these things. And most importantly, Lord, it just, it just requires the presence and activity of your spirit. I thank you, Lord, that no matter how we feel about our own intention of these things today, no matter how we look over the last week and if we pursued the new man or not, we know that the spirit is working in us and through us towards just that end. And so I pray, God, that even this week, we would find your yoke easy and your burden light because you are empowering us from within for something new. And I pray with every passing day and with every passing week, our church, Calvary of the Hill, would become more and more a community of new women and new men, a community that reflects your kingdom and your power to change lives, a community that receives people just where they are but doesn't leave them there because God has something better for them in a community that is committed to doing everything we can to experience everything you have for us in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.